Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the third and final installment of a three-part interview with tech publisher and thought leader Tim O'Reilly, discussing his fascinating career as well as the rich tapestry of original thinking that fills his recent book, WTF. If you haven't yet heard parts one and two, there are links on the page where this player is embedded, and I strongly suggest that you go back and listen to them before this one. And with that, back to my conversation with Tim O'Reilly, but quickly to set context, at this point in the conversation, we're talking about how automation sometimes actually increases demand for the jobs you'd think it would replace by making the worker more valuable and productive and therefore more desirable to hire. This doesn't happen all the time, of course, but there are really significant instances in which it has happened and hopefully will continue to. Yesterday, we talked about the example of ATMs and tellers. The job market for tellers actually exploded after ATMs first emerged in the 80s, which is really contrary to what you'd think. And today, we're going to open by talking about robotics in Amazon's warehouses. And and we see it right now with Amazon and robots. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's an incredible example. And I'll actually quote your own book to you because I I found this example so powerful. I I pulled out the the passage and you wrote, uh, robots seem to have accelerated Amazon's human hiring. From 2014 to 2016, the company went from having 1,400 robots in its warehouses to 45,000. During the same time frame, it added nearly 200,000 full-time employees. It added 110,000 employees in 2016 alone most of them in its highly automated fulfillment centers. Then you added, they can't hire fast enough. enough. Robots allow Amazon to pack more products into the same warehouse footprint and make human workers more productive. They aren't replacing people, they're augmenting them. Um, and to that, I'll add, I just a few days ago, and I'll, I'll put a link in the, the show notes, there was an amazing article in the New York Times uh, about this very phenomenon. It's almost like a photo essay. It also has videos of these Kiva robots um, from inside the Amazon warehouses. And you see some of the workers who had formerly just been doing very simple pick and lift stuff. Uh, some of them are now like maestros in front of a symphony conducting these platoons of robots. Yeah, so, so the point is that if we actually use technology to do new things or to do more of the things that make our society more productive, you know, again, yeah. Amazon will deliver to you now in many locations same day. So we don't have to run out of jobs. And this really comes back to uh, this notion in the book of the collective uh, intelligences yeah. and, and really and algorithmic thinking. And, and it turns out that if you look at algorithmic systems like Google uses to give you search results or yeah. Facebook uses to curate the newsfeed. They have what in the book I describe as a fitness function. It's often mm-hmm. called an objective function. And it basically is the thing that you're trying to optimize for. Mm-hmm. And so Google is trying to optimize for relevance and they measure it by did people seem to find what they want? Right. Literally, if you if if you Google succeeds, you basically click on a Google result and then you don't come back right. because it was the right result. And it knows that uh, was a success. That's right. Same yeah. thing with an ad. You know, you click through and you do something. And they built their business model around that. Facebook has a very different one. They have this, we want you to click on more. We want you to spend more time. So even though it looks like they both have, quote, an advertising business model, their business models are actually very, very different. Mm. But in each case, there's this optimization function. Mm. And so I, I started thinking about that and 
as a metaphor for our broader economy. And that led me down the path to realize that our financial markets are also one of these great collective intelligences. Mm. And what is its optimization function? And, and this takes me back to this point that the ideas that we plant in this global mind are so yeah. important because in 1970, Milton Friedman planted this idea. And the idea was that the only responsibility of a corporation is to make money for its shareholders. Mm -hmm. Before that, we thought that corporations had lots of objectives and, and they had lots of constituencies. You know, they had to look after their workers. They had to look after society. And he basically put out this idea that no, 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 you know, all of that doesn't belong to the corporation that belongs to, you know, we just give the money to the shareholders and they'll figure it out. And they make donations That's as right. voluntary societies. They do that on their own time and with the money that the corporations and it was It was yeah. a good idea. It was just wrong, mm. right? We know now, just like Mark Zuckerberg's idea that engagement would actually make for, you know, for community and people would you know, be more connected and, mm. and the, the world would be a better place. And suddenly we see fake news and all these things that went wrong with Facebook's algorithms. What we see here is if, if Mark has to fix Facebook's optimization function yep. in order to deal with the, the, the problem of fake news, well, let's fix the optimization problem that we have right now in our financial economy. If in fact we have this immense technological power which will produce all kinds of human bounty the challenge that we have as a society is to make it new to think fresh thoughts about just like the founders uh, uh, you know after the american revolution said well you know we've gotten rid of monarchy what are we going to do yeah and they tried to, to to reinvent you know the way a country would be governed and i think we have an opportunity in this world of ai and cognitive productivity to reinvent the economy. Now, when you mentioned that huge uh, technological bounty and the need to invent something completely new, it made me think of a, a term you've used in prior conversations with me. I'm not sure if it's in the book. It's combinatorial innovation. And it seems that's where the bounty often comes from. And so maybe that's where our opportunity to fix things lie. Um, as you described it to me, combinatorial innovation is taking completely disparate technologies that have arisen and weaving them together in ways that create tremendous and unanticipated new things, which really magnify what society's gaining from those new technologies. So you might say with Uber and Lyft, it was, you know, we've suddenly got all got GPS in our pockets for reasons that have nothing to do with ride hailing. And we've got this mobile payment system that Braintree or Sprite or who, Stripe or whoever created for completely unrelated reasons. And suddenly they combine into something society shifting that no one saw coming, ride sharing in this case. You almost get amazing things for free that used to be impossible or wildly expensive by cobbling together a few other new things that just kind of happen to be lying around, so to speak. Speak. And that when these new things can become an ingredient, maybe this new thing rather, can become an ingredient to something even more amazing, um, which may create a lot more jobs and social good. I think the example you used with Uber and Lyft 
was that even in a worst case scenario from a job standpoint with self-driving cars, let's say seven, eight years, 10 years down the line, a lot of jobs will be displaced from those. But the cost of a ride might also come down by 80%. So while there's a lot of economic dislocation, a whole realm of new services can arise that are based on the sudden extraordinary affordability and ubiquity of transportation. Uh, Much as the abundance and cheapness of wool led to the rise of fashion, the world laid off a lot of weavers, but through combinatorial innovation, a whole slew of opportunities arose. Yeah, well, it it is... The possibilities of the future are often, you know, lying latent in the field of our vision, mm-hmm. and, and we we can't see them, and then, and then suddenly we do, and we rewrite the world, and uh, you know, so that's the uh, kind of the central idea, you know, is that technology is this tool of amazement. The title of the book, WTF, you know, WTF can be an expression of amazement yeah. or an expression of dismay right and a lot of people are focused on the wtf of dismay mm. uh when they think about technology in the future mm. and it's our job as technologists to make the wtf of amazement be the one that that guides us and i think maybe the dismay filter is so compelling to us humans because when we were evolving on the savannah it was so important to prevent losses so maybe it's a result of that when both amazement and dismay can be appropriate. We often only feel the dismay. And you mentioned something that kind of exemplifies this in your book, which the VR pioneer, uh, Jaron Lanier, said. So I went and dug up the full original quote. It's from the preface of his book uh, from 2013, Who Owns the Future? He says, here's a current example of the challenge we face. At the height of its power, the co- photography company Kodak employed more than 140,000 people and was worth $28 billion. They even invented the first digital camera. But today, Kodak is bankrupt, and the new face of digital photography has become Instagram. When Instagram was sold to Facebook for a $1 billion in 2012, it employed only 13 people. Where did all those jobs disappear? And what happened to the wealth that all those middle-class jobs created? Now, that's a despairing WTF. But there's also a very uplifting WTF. WTF in your book that looks at digital photography through a completely different lens, if you'll pardon the pun, that I found brilliant. Well, first off, uh, I've always found that Jaron Lanier notion to be sort of impossibly wrong, Mm. uh, because the idea that Instagram represents digital photography, when you think about the mountain of of work that's required to bring us Instagram, it is is the little tip of of this massive economy you know of data centers of internet connectivity of manufacturing of, of phones that are more ubiquitous than cameras ever were ever were you yeah. know and you th- you think about the number of little shops that are everywhere selling cell phones yeah you know there uh, how many people work for comcast and t-mobile and all sprint all the carriers and all of the cable that had to be laid and all, you know, just immense amounts of work in order for that Instagram culture uh, to exist. And you also make the point in your book that in a very real way, the rise of digital photography enabled vast new platforms, ones that verge on, you know, being almost economic sectors like Airbnb to arise. In the specific case of Airbnb, the pictures that the hosts were posting on the site were terrible at first, and people weren't using the site as a result. Would you mind sharing that story? Well, it was basically uh, one of the things they realized when when it was not really taking off, uh, Brian and... Uh, 
Joe went to New York. Yeah. Uh, and they talked to hosts. And, yep. and one of the things they figured out was that not having good pictures was one of their blocks. And so they actually, they were, you know, good with uh, design. And they basically yeah. went around and took great pictures of the hosts. And the whole thing took off. And that was the turning and, and then, point. And then they literally, yeah. uh, uh, you know, hired a, a team of photographers and, and on behalf of their hosts, yeah. photographed their places for them. And that was this critical boost to their, uh, to their platform. Which has created significant income for several hundred thousand Airbnb hosts, which we don't instinctively think of as offsetting the losses at Kodak. And in the book, you also talk about lots of ways wealth can be shared that go beyond straight ahead salary structures. If you look at history, you know, there's a lot of ways to pay people more. Uh, you know, one is reduce working hours, you know. People in the factories of the uh, sweatshops of the Victorian era and still in many parts of the world work 80, 100 hour weeks. You know, we reduced that to 40 hours. Mm -hmm. We took kids out of the uh, you know, factories and sent them to school. And, and so, you know, whether it's literally cut back working hours or whether it's, you know, introduce new kinds of benefits uh, like family care time off is really it's really a way of reducing working hours yeah. and uh, new kinds of educational, you know, time off are, are all ways that we could uh, pass along more to the workers. Mm -hmm. and, and the question is, why don't we? And it's because we have basically we're really in the thrall of our financial markets. And you really see this with a company like Apple. Mm. You know, here's Apple, the, 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 the most successful company in the history of the world when it comes to Profits. Yeah. These are profits in the real market. People give you money for your stuff, yeah. and you have actual cash. Yeah. You know, and uh, they don't need any money from financial markets, and yet they're still somehow slave to financial markets. Mm. So that somebody like Carl Icahn can come along, buy a position in the stock, and say, "We're going to fire you unless you give us that money." But they are compelled by the master algorithm of our economy mm -hmm. to keep making more money, to keep their stock price going up. That's my economic screed that's at the heart of the book is, you know, what we learn from technology is that technology wants to fix things. How do you weight the algorithm differently at O'Reilly Media? I mean, you're pretty much immune from the markets, right? You never took venture capital. Right. We're a private company. You know, again, in our small way, we're not, you know, we try to pay people well. We, like as a platform, we have a, a, our online platform, Safari. We think all the time about the health of the entire platform. So how many folks are at O'Reilly now? About 400. About 400. That's a good number. And how many books have you put out now? Is it hundreds or is it into the thousands? I'm sure it's many thousands. Many thousands. Yeah, it's, we've yeah. been doing this for 30 years and multiple editions and, and books come and go. I, yeah, I, would, I don't know if it's tens of thousands, but it's definitely many thousands. Uh, that's a lot of books. And uh, I say that as an author. And speaking of which, I know from prior conversations that science fiction has impacted you a lot ever since you were a kid. So to tap briefly into your own inner science fiction author, do you think the people of the future will have a relationship with technology that's basically an extension of what we've experienced? Or, or do you think they'll be transformed by technology in fundamentally different ways? Yes, the people of the future are going to be transformed by technology in different ways. And I was very conscious of that also when I was a kid. My brother used to refer to me as the failed hunter-gatherer. I was blind <laughs> as a bat, and I, you know, I'm reading too much, and I didn't wear my glasses. And, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, you know, I was adapted for a world that was coming. Right. You know, and I was not very well adapted to the, you know, the schoolyard 
world that I was living in, you know, I was like this little bookish kid who didn't play sports and didn't, yeah. you know, and, you know, again, we saw that whole revenge of the nerds uh, kind of thing. And uh, anyway, I, I, I was one of those nerds. And, and I think that, that the people of the future, you know, who have access to, uh, you know, just knowledge on demand way beyond what we have today, yeah. you know, where the sort of ambient computing, ambient knowledge, you know, and I do think we will get to the point where we have, certainly we're going to have pervasive Alexa-like experiences in, you know, that are connected. So many, many, there'll be many, many objects that we can talk to yeah. and that will understand what, what they want, what we are asking them to do. Uh, we will have, uh, Certainly, I think we will have uh, some kind of AR heads-up display, at least until we get to the point where we have direct brain, yeah, direct neural yeah. interfaces. And I think neural interfaces are, certainly neural output is already uh, on its way, uh, whether it's you know, muscular-based, uh, some amazing work being done there, um, uh, whether it's, it's not necessarily going to be electrodes implanted in your head. Yeah. But we are going to get there to... Uh, a very different world unless unless we take another path which is that we turn against technology yeah and that's the thing that i i guess i've always had in the back of my mind as a classicist yeah and that is that you know uh ray kurzweil likes to say that yes there's been this uh you know continual you know through the middle ages through the dark ages this continual march of progress and he draws these graphs and I go, yeah, but, you know, for the people who were there, who were part of that, it didn't feel like progress. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still, I, I think of that, there's this wonderful passage uh, in a medieval manuscript. There's this period of about 100 years of, of war, and it was referred to as the time when Christ and his saints slept. Hmm. You know, it's like, we could have a time like that, too. Yeah. You know, where... Things are terrible. Because we've rejected technology, perhaps like a Luddite type of thing? Well, it could be that we've rejected technology, but more, I, I think about it, probably the biggest challenge is going to be that, uh, you know, like you think about climate change. Yeah. And you think about what we just experienced in Houston and now in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And these terrific natural disasters, and they're happening all over the world. Mm. And you think about how much of our economic activity is going to be diverted towards fixing those things. And, you know, you're going to end up with disasters. You're going to end up with, uh, you know, more and more refugees. Uh, you're going to end up with political instability. And the whole thing comes crashing down. Yeah. And, and that's a, a very dark scenario that is very much in the realm of possibility. I end the book actually with a little exercise in scenario planning, which, yeah. of course, is this discipline for imagining very different futures and and then thinking about what is a robust strategy, which is a strategy which makes sense in the face of of these wildly divergent futures, one in which there's incredible abundance and one in which there's, uh, you know, the collapse of, of society as we know it. Yeah. And uh, this, to me, the strategy that is good, whichever way you go, is one in which generosity and, and trying to build a better world for all of us 
is part of it. You know, yeah. we will make better decisions if that's our operating premise. Are you worried about people turning against technology? We've seen what might be early signs of that in San Francisco, if not yet against technology per se. There have been people throwing rocks at the Google buses and so forth. And there are a couple speculative passages in your book where you talk about the Luddites going way back. And you talk about the possibility that perhaps in reaction to, say, maybe it's climate change or other things that people have dissatisfaction about, inequality, there might be a turning against technology. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was that I saw this coming. I started working on, I started this conference called the Next Economy Summit. Uh, and uh, I started working on it in 2013 because I was seeing this coming that, that we were going to turn against technology because technology is being used uh, to put people out of jobs. Mm -hmm. This na narrative about disruption, we're going to get rid of this. And, and the counter narrative I'm trying to put out is like, no, that's not what technology is for. Yeah. You know, we, we saw this uh, blow up recently around this startup called Bodega. And it was like, we're going to disrupt the Bodega, the little corner store. We're going to put them out of, out of work with automated kiosks. My wife, Jen Palka, wrote a piece three or four years ago called Bodega 2.0 that was the real vision yeah. of what would be the disruptive pattern for bodegas. And it's how would we build a platform infrastructure for bodegas so that they had the kind of intelligence about what the market wants that Walmart has, for example. Augmented bodegas and, like yeah, augmented workers. That's right. Yeah. Augmented bodegas, you know, platforms where they could buy stuff uh, ch for cheap so that the, the people in these poor neighborhoods would actually have access to cheaper food, not the, not be, you know, the people who are the poorest have to pay the most for Which the worst the products. You know, yeah. how, how would we solve that problem? Now, that's what Silicon Valley should be working on. That's Bodega 2.0, not some automat so that, you know, we, we don't have to have a proprietor there. You know, this just reminds me that one of the things I love about your book is the extraordinary empathy you express for even the angriest, let's call them disruptees. I mean, the term Luddite is almost always used, especially by folks in tech, in a highly pejorative way, and there's very little empathy for them. But there's this wonderful passage that, again, compels me to quote your book back to you. When you were talking about the pain that the actual historical Luddites were motivated by when they wrecked the, those machines, and you said... Uh, but those weavers couldn't imagine that their descendants would have more clothing than the kings and queens of Europe, that ordinary people would eat the fruits of summer in the depths of winter. They couldn't imagine that we'd tunnel through mountains and under the sea, that we'd fly through the air, crossing continents and hours, that we'd build cities in the desert with buildings a half mile high, that we'd stand on the moon and put spacecraft in orbit around distant planets, that we would eliminate so many scourges of disease." That is just profoundly empathetic, optimistic, and, and very lyrical. Yeah, I also said, and they could not imagine that their descendants would, you know, I forget exactly how I said it, enjoy fulfilling work, bringing all these this magic to yeah. life. And yes, that's so true. And that's kind of what's at stake now. We could we could go up another level comparable to we that could, we if could. we don't turn against That's right. this. And, yeah. and actually, probably my favorite story, I mean, I, I try to end on a, on a, on a bunch of, of positive, you know, entrepreneurs who are doing positive uh, yeah. visions for the world. But probably my favorite story, uh, because it's a collective action story, is the story of the high school movement in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, which began in 1909 in Iowa, mm -hmm. where the people realized that their kids wouldn't need to work on the farm mm. and that their kids were going to be put out of work. Mm. And there was this 
basically this organic movement that spread and from 1909 9% of eligible age you know teenagers went to high school in, in, the, in the United States yeah. and by 1935 that's just 24 years later it was up to 70% and these people just basically it was spread and people taxed themselves and they started schools and basically they transformed the economy and we have these enormous moments of transformation like that where people go whoa this ain't working we can do something different you know and so this whole generation that expected that just like their parents they'd work on the farm you know suddenly didn't have to and that phrase didn't have to is so powerful because it sounds like they started out thinking they couldn't work on the farm which had to be terrifying but then moving from couldn't to don't have to is so bold, and it led them to create something so much bigger. That's exciting. And the, the thing that really triggered me into that story was this wonderful statement from Bob Putnam, the author of Bowling Alone and various other books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he, he said in a, at a meeting I was at, he said, the, uh, he said, all of the great advances in our society have come when we have invested in other people's children. Mm. And I love that statement because... That is what is before us. You know, we have to invest in our children and our grandchildren. And when we think about them as the object of our economy to yeah. make a better world for those who follow us, we are going to be able to create this magical world where WTF is an expression of amazement. Yeah. And that is... Uh, you know, just like those people uh, I described from the you know early days of the Industrial Revolution would be so amazed. Right. Uh, you know, we will be so amazed if we get this right. We get this. We right. will be so amazed at this magical working economy that works by completely different rules than anything we can imagine today. Well, let's hope that something equally lyrical to that beautiful paragraph that I couldn't help but quote to you can be said a couple generations from now about the things we can't imagine that hopefully lie in the near future. And I like your idea of ending on a positive note. That's a positive one. You have been outlandishly generous with your time. Thank you very, very kindly. This was a fabulous conversation. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Rob. So I hope you enjoyed that. That was actually my first ever proper conversation with Tim. We've crossed paths a few times over the years and exchanged brief pleasantries, but that was the first time we sat down and talked one-on-one -on -one for longer than even a minute. And it was a great honor and an education for me. It was also wonderful to be able to document such a personally significant conversation. It's just too bad I had to use my iPhone to do it. So apologies once again for the sound quality. It's ironic that this should happen just a few days after none other than Sam Harris publicly called me out, quite appropriately, I'll add, for the consistently low quality of the consonant P as recorded in our interview. So apologies to Sam as well as Tim. At episode 10, I still have a lot to learn. If you enjoyed this interview, you should seriously consider checking out Tim's book, WTF. Personally, for me, the book was a feast. Although I should note that in many ways, I'm the ideal audience for it. I'm fascinated by the history of the commercial internet, which, when he wasn't personally shaping it, Tim documented from a front and center seat. I'm also optimistic by nature, almost pathologically so, according to those who know me the best. So the book's largely optimistic message resonates strongly with me. 
And I love elegant, counterintuitive framings of complex events and processes, a domain that Tim has few, if any, peers in. His response to Jaron Lanier's dour comparison of Kodak to Instagram is, to a mind like mine, a veritable work of art. So, Ars Technica listeners, here we conclude the third and final installment of my interview with Tim O'Reilly. I do hope you enjoyed it. And if you do enjoy my work, I hope you'll consider visiting my site at after-on.com or just type the words After On into your favorite podcast player and scroll through the episodes. You'll find lots of stuff about life sciences above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, quantum computing, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, augmented reality, did I say that already, and a whole lot more. Or you could join me in September here on ours. Yes, September. We're taking August off from this lunchtime series to let everyone better focus on the tail end of the summer, or the winter, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. But starting in early September, we'll be back again with lots of fascinating conversations about tech, science, and society. I do hope you'll join us then.